All right, the youth can be dismissed. For Sunday school, the rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one. Uh, as Colby mentioned earlier, on a seat somewhere near you within reach. Definitely turn there to Romans chapter 5 as we uh, continue and really ascend in our time of worship through the hearing and the study of the Word of God. Romans chapter 5, we're in a verse-by-verse study through the book, uh, this excellent book, just taking it one verse at a time. And as I hope you all had a refreshing Thanksgiving, hope you had plenty to eat and thank the Lord for. Uh, In this next section of Romans, there is plenty also to feast on and to chew on. As we're in part two, looking at this section, Romans 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 14, this, the, the title of our study is The Origin of Sin and Death. And that sounds kind of grim and depressing. Why that, especially this time of year? Well, it's the necessary backdrop against which we properly understand and celebrate what Christ has done. Romans chapter 5. And again, a welcome to all of you, and especially those of you who are newer. Great to have you all. Romans chapter 5. Well, the year was 1824. And 1824, and it was a presidential election year uh, to, to elect our sixth, the sixth president of the United States. And I believe there are about 24 states at that time. So, so what happened was, in the 1824 election, uh, they had the Electoral College, similar to what we have now. Four candidates received electoral votes from the states. Andrew Jackson received 99 votes. John Quincy Adams received 84. William Crawford received 41. And a gentleman named Henry Clay received 37. Similar to now, you, uh, an individual has to receive a certain amount of electoral votes to actually get elected president. It's 270 now, then it was 131. So there was a dilemma. Andrew Jackson received the most, 99. And so under the 12th Amendment, the vote goes to the House of Representatives, and the representatives decide who will be president. So what they do is they take the top three who received the the three, the three candidates who receive the most electoral votes, and then they'll decide amongst themselves which of the three becomes president. Henry Clay was booted because he received the fewest of the four, so they took the other three. However, uh, history records Henry Clay went and had a private meeting with John Quincy Adams. And he said, you see the dilemma before you, that Mr. Jackson has received quite a few more electoral votes than you. When this goes back to the representatives, he's probably going to be chosen. And so history records that Clay and Quincy Adams made a deal. Clay said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I received 37 votes. I'll go back to my representatives and I'll sway them and others if possible to give you their vote so that you can oust candidate, then candidate Andrew Jackson. And of course, John Quincy Adams said, well, what do you want in return? (laughs) Because there's no free lunch. And he wanted Secretary of State. And so John Quincy Adams said, deal. History records. So, It worked, and John Quincy Adams received the necessary, well, he received the vote from the House of Representatives and went on to become our sixth president. Andrew Jackson, of course, and his supporters called it a, quote, corrupt bargain. They coined that term, and then he used that term in 1828 and following when when he was elected president, our seventh president. But this was a situation where an election did not turn out 
the way that many people wanted because of the actions of representatives. Because of political officials who represented the larger population of the nation. The election was turned over to the representatives. Mr. Clay and Adams supposedly cut a deal. Whatever it was, representatives were influenced by Clay. Then the results were what many people did not want because of the people's representatives. And that's something of what we're seeing in this captivating text here in Romans 5, 12 to 14 that introduces a new, this new chunk, this section. Romans 5, 12 to 21 is sort of a big, meaty chunk, a new section of Scripture, notwithstanding the fact that the chapter divisions aren't there. Those are added later, as you know. Now, when we're talking about representatives, we're not talking, of course, about a presidential election. That's not the topic here in Romans 5, 12, and following. Something a little more consequential. The first person of the human race, a literal Adam, we'll talk about it, that the text talks about he actually represented in the same way that in a government of representation, we have representatives that represent the people and their decisions impact others. Adam, the first human being, represented the human race, this text will go on to show us. And because of his unfortunate decision, rebellion against God, the results of his representation and decision plunged the human race into sin and death. Something far more consequential than a president, notwithstanding how much consequences that certainly does have, something far more consequential not getting the president you want, but the fall of the human race. And so there's a real sense in which, if we're going to understand all that's wrong and the sorrows, and there are many sorrows in life and in the world, they can be traced back to Adam representing us and representing the human race at the dawn of creation, rebelling against God, so our passage is, is talking about this in a, in a really a meaty, intriguing, theological way. And it, it's not just doing so to recount depressing history, but so that we can understand as the text up to verse 12 has been just talking and gushing about the love of God and the grace of God. Why did Christ come? Christmas season, why did he come? Why is he, as, as we sing, we do sing, we talk about, why is he the greater Adam? Why is he called the second Adam? Why did he do this work? And why this term, new birth? It, this passage is critical to understanding the Christian faith. And there are three terms. We talked about them last week. If you've been with us in Romans, you kind of have heard these and understand these. But there's really three terms I want us to uh, to remember, if you're a note-taker, write these down. Three terms. Representation, we already talked about that. Imputation. And regeneration. Representation. Imputation. And regeneration. Know these terms. Jot these down. These are essential to understanding the Christian faith and the glory of what Christ done. The darkness of what happened. People are always trying to figure out why, you know, scientists and psychologists, why, why is there the, these, these things that happen in the world and such discouraging things because there are. It comes back to this. There are different sort of surface explanations, but really the origin is this. In these three terms we're going to discuss, representation, imputation, and regeneration. Would that follow along as I read? I'm going to read Romans 5.12 through Oh, verse 20-ish. Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 12. The inerrant, inspired word of God reads, Therefore, Romans 5, 12, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam. Who is a type of him who was to come? 
But the gracious gift is not like the transgressions. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be appointed righteous. Now the law came, came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the reading of the Word of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite authors, preachers, the late Dr. Lloyd-Jones, a Welshman who preached for decades at Westminster Chapel in downtown London, even preached through the war while the city was being bombed, the great writer by God's grace, he said of Romans 5, 12 to 21, that this, quote, is the most crucial section of the entire epistle, end quote. And some commentators differ. Some say it's, no, it's 321 to 26. <clears throat> but I think as we plow through this section, Lord willing, you'll, you'll understand that. And it's very fitting that this is our next section in the Christmas season. Romans 5 is discussing, among other things, especially from verse 6 and on, how certain... Is the salvation, the justification, the eternal life, how certain it is, this salvation that God brings? It's not a maybe. It's not a I hope. This is, you know, we have a, a, good, a good year, a good snow year this winter. It's a certain salvation. That's the big overarching purpose of this section, and that remains in verse 12 to 21. So it's been rightly said that if you can grasp Romans 5, 12 and beyond, then you've grasped in large part a huge chunk of understanding why are things wrong in the world, like the, the roots, the, the underlying reason, and a whole chunk of Christian theology. You saw the comparison there that, that's going back and forth between one man and Christ, or Adam and Christ. It's saying, you saw it as just as through one guy, Adam, literal guy, all this destruction came into the world, sin and death. So through another guy, the God-man, Christ, that will be fixed. Sin and death and condemnation and guilt, you can be pulled out of that. So there, really history can be boiled down to these two lines of humanity. Again, you understand that, you've, just, you've understood a lot. Understanding the line of Adam or understanding the line of Christ. Everybody is in one of those. Everyone starts in Adam. Not everyone is in Christ, however. Would to God that all would be, as Paul said in Acts chapter 26. Adam is, is sort of a, the head, a representative of the fallen line of humanity, the line into which all of us are born. And Christ is a representative of the redeemed line of humanity, not those who, who are better or, or by their works earned heaven. We can't by grace. He's, he's the line of grace, of redemption by grace Christ is. That's what's happening here in this text. Again, Lloyd-Jones said, the whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what's happened because of Adam and what has happened and will happen because of Christ. So, here we go. We're, we, we, we left off last week. We, we dug into the first two points, just introduced the third. We have three realities we're looking at. If you're taking notes, three realities behind all that's wrong in the world. Three realities behind all that's wrong in the world. Obviously, there are more secondary and tertiary reasons that the text doesn't address, but these this is like the fountainhead. Three realities. Number one, we saw this. 
The damage of depravity has come through Adam. The damage of depravity came through Adam. Look at verse 12 of Romans 5. Look there, please. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world. What a, what a, a just a massive amount of stuff and sorrow and destruction is summed up in that one statement. Through one man, sin entered the world. So our great ancestor, Adam, is who this is talking about. We know that because later in verse, in verse 14 and on, he'll, he'll actually be named. The first man created at the beginning of creation, he rebelled. God was very clear at the beginning, if you rebel, you don't need to rebel because I, I love you and I've outfitted the world and I'm with you and you have everything you need. But if you rebel, there's going to be some, some massive consequences. It will not go well with you. And so what happened was he did. And none of us should say, well, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. Now, we, we would have caved earlier. He was far stronger, far closer to the origin of things, walked with God. We would have done the same thing. We ought not to peacock ourselves and think that we would have one-upped him. So when, when, when he sinned, when Adam rebelled against God, then every person... There is, a, there is a jarring of the spiritual and moral nature and the fabric of the, of the human race after that. It's corrupted. It's like that DNA, the invisible material. Everyone knows we have soul and body. We're material and immaterial. That immaterial, the soul of us, has just mutated. A massive, irreparable, spiritual mutation, beloved, that has happened. The human race is not born neutral, and we all know this. We talked about the illustrations, being a parent, we have to have laws, we have to have keys and locks. You don't need that stuff. You don't need security codes, encryptions, if the human race is born neutral or good. Sadly, no one ever has to be trained to think and do things that fall on the negative side of neutral. This is because we have what's called original sin. You deny this, you're, you're living in a delusion. You deny reality, you're not understanding why, at least the origin of what is wrong in the world. Original sin, our natural drive is to favor self over God, obey self over God, exalt self over God. We don't become sinful once we grow older and sin. It's in our nature and we sin out of that. A giraffe's neck, a giraffe isn't, doesn't become a giraffe because it's trying to, on the Sahara, reach reach and reach for a leaf and its, and, and its neck grows longer and then it gets its design. Oh, then it becomes a giraffe. No, its neck is long and it has the design it has because it's a giraffe out of its nature. This is how it is. Original sin. Number two. The damage of death came through depravity. Number two, the damage of death came through depravity. Death happened because of this sin. God again said in Genesis 2.17, look, if you rebel against me, this thing that you don't know about, he said to the first humans, this thing called death, you don't know what that is. You, you don't experientially, but I promise you, you don't want it. This will happen. Verse 12, look back there. And it says, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the other catastrophe. In the beginning of creation, there was no such thing as funerals, and drowning, and malignant tumors, and murder, and violence, and Parkinson's, and cancer, and heart failure, and rape, depression, anxiety, murder, war, suicide. No such thing as those. And there will be a day again when those are a past memory for all in Christ. But in the meantime... DNA and cells doing what they're not supposed to do and storms and accidents and people in cars doing what they're not supposed to do and bringing about death. All these things came into the world now because of rebellion against God. How significant must rebellion against God be? Everything that serves death came into the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and Adam all die. 
We looked at that in detail. And number three, here's where we left off last week. The third truth and reality behind all that's wrong in the world. Number three, condemnation came through Adam. Number three, condemnation, guilt, that is before God, came through Adam. This is verse 12 to 14. And death, notice what it says. Death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin's not imputed when there's no law. In other words, if you don't have rules, no laws, then there's no such thing as sin, but there is. Sin was in the world. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. The time from Adam until, until Moses came and gave the law, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who's a type of him to come. Adam is a foreshadowing of the greater Adam, the second Adam. So the question of this text is, this, this text that's caused no small amount of controversy, at the end of verse 12 there, look at that phrase. It says, all because all sinned. So the question is, how, how have all sinned? It's because this, this is not saying all sinned in the same way that Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's talking about everybody thinks, does, says, sting, things that fall short of God's moral bar. This is talking about it in a different way. In Bible study, you know, we have to consider context. What's the context here? Here it's Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden, beginning of creation, when only Adam and Eve existed, no one else. And yet it says all sinned, past tense. We know who's the all here. Well, we know it's referring to the whole human race because in verse 12, it's saying that depravity and death spread to all. All die. So this is everybody. Everybody, therefore, sinned. So in what sense did the entire human race Sin when we did not yet exist and only Adam did. Tracking? Okay, all right. So when only Adam and Eve existed, the human race, remember that word representation and imputation. This is the bad kind of imputation. There are two other good kinds. The human race is guilty before God. We're considered to have all sinned and thus be guilty because Adam acted in a, in a representative manner, representation of the human race. So we're guilty before God because Adam served as this representative Representative headship or federal headship, the doctrine is sometimes traditionally considered. So we understand this view. This view, of course, raises objections. As I study this and even and, and was looking at this, I'm tempted to think, ah, no, that, that doesn't seem fair. How is that just? How is representative headship just? Because the idea, right, this assumes the action of a representative is determinative for those united to the individual. That's the assumption here, whom the individual response, uh, re- represents. Excuse me. And just as our opening illustration of the election of 1824, right, we understand that in governments that have a, that many forms of government in the world, not just our nation, have a government in the form of representation. Right? We have representatives of the Congress, and people go, and they represent, or at least are supposed to, and their actions are very uh, determinative upon things and have great uh, consequences for those whom they represent. That's kind of what's happening here. We're, we're used to that. F- upon first hearing of this idea that Adam and Adam were guilty in sin, it's like, whoa. But we're actually used to the idea of representation. So at the beginning of creation, Adam was this representative of the human race, and, in, and therefore through him, we sinned. And so his Sin and guilt is then imputed. Remember, imputation, in other words, it's imputed to us as the human race because of representation. So imputation through representation, right? Okay. A couple things that support this. Look at verse 18. Briefly, Romans 5.18. So then, there's the comparison, as through one man transgress, as through one transgression, verse 18, there resulted, notice, condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So notice that through one, one sin, at the beginning of verse 18, condemnation results. Where condemna- condemnation, what does that mean? It means a verdict of guilt. Guilty standing. So through one sin, his, Adam's, representation, imputation, guilt happens to us. Furthermore, 
and verse 14, back in Romans 5, there's this, there's this sort of ominous phrase in the middle, but it's very telling. Even over, notice, death and reign, a death reign from Adam until Moses, verse 14, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam. So it's saying, even though, even though there were people, many people, everybody but Adam, who didn't commit his sin by way of representation and imputation, were, were, were guilty. Okay, see that in the text? And then the other thing that we have to, we have to think about that really holds this up is this, this parallel that's set up in verse 12 to 19 between Adam and Christ. There is a parallel. Just as Adam did this, and there are catastrophic consequences on the whole human race in him, so as Christ does this one thing, his perfect life, right, death, resurrection, his saving work, through him, there's not tragic or catastrophic, but redeeming consequences through him. So there's that parallel, and both parallels are assuming imputation because of representation. Right? Got it? So when we're thinking about verse 18, for example, when, when he says, okay, you get condemnation through one act. We didn't do the act. It's imputed to us because of representation. The parallel in verse 18, look at it there, it's set up. Even so, parallel, comparison, Verse 18, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So, we did not commit Adam's sin, but because of representation and imputation, we're, we're held guilty, we're sinful. In the same way, did we commit Christ's saving, saving act? Nobody does. Even so, because of representation through imputation, those who put faith in him receive not the negative consequences that Adam brought us into, but the greatly positive consequences, beloved, of salvation. We didn't commit his acts of righteousness, and no one complains, well, that's not fair that we get saved through Adam's, excuse me, through Christ's act, representation through imputation. Now we rejoice as we sing. So you see the parallel there. The only way this system works is representation through imputation or imputation through representation. Okay? We didn't commit Adam's sin, but because he represented us, we're united to him, his guilt and the sin and the consequences that are imputed to us. We did not do Jesus' act. <laughs> No one would claim that in a sane mind. Sinlessness. Crucifixion, resurrection. We didn't do that. But because he represents us, at least those who repent and put faith in him, his act, his righteousness is imputed to us. That's how we know this whole system of representation. Okay? So when, when we think about and we're tempted to think, you know, that's kind of unfair with Adam... We, we can respond to ourselves or to someone and say, well, no one responds that it's unfair to impute Christ's saving work and righteousness to us, even though we didn't do the work of Christ. Right? No, one, no one complains about that. A child will complain when they disobey and get consequences. That's just justice, right? But if those consequences are withheld and they get mercy... They won't complain and say, well, you're withholding justice from me, actually. Any of you with little children, has that ever happened? Mom, you're giving me mercy. You shouldn't do that. That's withholding justice. That hasn't happened. Okay, so we can see that the protest arises here just because there's a negative consequence. But when there's a positive one, namely salvation, though we didn't do the work, Christ did it, and it's imputed to us through representation, nobody complains. So something's amiss. Right? Imagine a football team, and imagine that team A is winning by two points. And it's getting down to, to, to the end of the fourth quarter, and they're trying to hold on to their victory. And imagine team A, they, 
They, somebody on, on team A, the team B is coming down the field, they're trying to hold them, they're up, team A is up by two points. Someone on team A commits a flagrant pass interference. Team B pushes all the way down the field, they kick a field goal to win. And imagine a backup guy who hasn't played on team A, he complains, oh, I can't believe that happened, we lost. Then imagine later in the season, team A goes to the Super Bowl and they win. And this backup player, he still has never played. Well, he rejoices. He's part of the victory. He shares in the spoil, as it were, even though he didn't actually do the work. So on the one situation, the negative one, he complained because he was united to that team. But in the other situation, he didn't complain when they won the Super Bowl. He was united to that team, and it was a positive. This is, this is what's happening here in imputation by representation. Right? So when we think about this, we want to praise God. We want to praise God. Though it's sorrow and great sadness what has been brought into the world through Adam and we participate in it. None of us are innocent. We've all fallen short of God's standard. We want to replace protest with praise, beloved. Praise God. That a God like God, the true God, would say, you know what, I tell you what. Here's what I'm going to do. Though through the representative Adam, sin and death were brought into the world, you participate in that, you're guilty by imputation, and you're guilty by participation. We've all fallen short. And though I've given you life and breath in your lungs, in your eyes and food and enjoyment, the possibility to enjoy life, and you've rebelled against me, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my son become a man and do what nobody could do and he's going to live this perfect life that none of us could live and live a, live a sinless life in the muck of this world and then I'm going to crush him on the cross when I impute your sins, the sins of all who put faith in him, to him on the cross. I'm going to impute all your sins to him though he didn't do them. That wasn't fair for him. Why should he get crushed and endure the wrath of God for sins he never committed because God is a God of love, that's why. He's a God of love, beloved, and grace. And God says, I'm going to do that for you. And I'm going to impute his righteousness to you. These are the two other types of imputation that are really good. Our sins to Christ, his righteousness to us by faith. And God says, I'm going to do all that, not based on your performance. Frankly, you have none. We have none. I have none relative to God's perfect, holy, moral bar, Matthew 5, 48. I'm going to do all that based on my own mercy. And because God had a tenderness in his heart, and because God the Father had a humility and has a leaning towards love, when he could just loathe us, when God could have a long time ago said, you know what, after a few thousand years, if that's how you're going to be, sons of Adam, I'm going elsewhere. I'm going to like go just chill out on another planet or something or another galaxy. But he didn't say that. He had, he had tenderness and compassion in his heart. And he crushed his son for us and imputed our sins to him for which we're gravely guilty. I just praise God. Let every human, every human being alive fall down and praise God for the salvation that Christ brings and offers to all who will simply in childlike faith fall down in confidence and trusting Jesus alone. Now, I want to conclude this study of verse 12 to 14 with so what's, a couple so what's. Books upon books have been and should be written on the so what of this passage. Upon book, upon book, upon book. I'm just going to do four quick so what's here of this idea of representation, imputation. Four quick so what's. So what about this? Hey, when I'm struggling and life's hard and I don't want to do what I need to do, number one, there's a couple things for us to consider to keep in mind here. And this, this first one's more kind of theological, but nevertheless very important. Number one, a literal salvation requires a literal atom. A literal salvation for you in the present and me requires a literal Adam in the past. 
And I want to just give you quick three reasons. Before I do, let me just say this. It was over 20 years ago. I had just been converted to Christ from a very Christless background. And a loved one in my family was quite concerned, like, oh, what's this garbage you're believing, all this? Is... So they said, hey, I'll tell you what. I don't, you're, you're crazy now. Will you meet with a Roman Catholic priest and he'll set you straight? I said, sure. And this person was saying, because your new beliefs about God and Christ and the Bible, they concern me. So in my ignorance, I thought, well, if this guy's a priest, surely he believes the Bible, the Word of God. So I went and I sat down. And we were, I was asking him questions and just trying to, like, listen and be teachable. You know, this guy has a, a collar and a, a initials in front of his name that I don't know what they mean, you know, letters. Um, so I, I need to hear what he says. But it, we, got, we, we got to talking about the book of Genesis and creation. And the priest said something that never forget that just totally shocked me then, doesn't now. But he said, well, whether, whether Adam, Adam was a literal person or perhaps a monkey into whom God put the spirit of Adam, it's not consequential, it doesn't matter. And I didn't know much back then, but something about that just didn't seem right to me as a baby Christian in my mid-20s. It just didn't jive. But as we think about the parallel between Romans 5 that it makes with Adam and Christ, two things are clear. Number one, it assumes, Romans 5 assumes a literal Adam. Christ believed in a literal Adam, Mark 10. But a literal Adam is essential for a literal salvation. You want to go to a literal heaven? You need a literal Adam. What's the connection? First, let's, let's say it this way. If you reject a literal Adam, a literal Genesis 1 through 3, then you have to reject these three things that build and have massive consequences. Number one, you have to reject a literal sin and death. If you reject a literal Adam, literal Genesis 1 to 3, you have to reject a literal sin and death. Why? Because sin and death, okay, they're, they're realities. They exist, obviously. You wouldn't, say to, you wouldn't say to somebody standing beside the bedside of a loved one who just got hit by a junk driver in a coma, well, the sin and death don't exist. Okay, you wouldn't say that. Some of these Christian science and these goofy movements say things like that. But to deny a literal Genesis 1-3, 1-3, and then Adam is by default to then deny the fall. Because it's through him and then that the fall came in. Right? Death, sin, and so on. Second, second consequence of rejecting a literal Adam, a rejection of a literal Jesus. No, no first Adam, then no second Adam. You can't have your cake and eat it too. How does this work? Because Romans 5.12 to 19, you saw the comparison and the parallel made between the historic Adam, who he is, what he did, and the historic Jesus, who he is, what he did. And the, the, the comparisons, they require that this guy was like, actually like a person, not a, not a, not a monkey, okay, or, or a myth. You need... The, the, the latter, Christ, being real, is assumed by the former, Adam, also being real, in this essential parallel, which Martin Lloyd-Jones says is the most important passage in Scripture. So, so if, if you're going to say Adam was mythical, you don't, then you have to say Jesus was too. Right? Got it? Third? Third consequence of rejecting a literal Genesis 1-3 in Adam, no justification no regeneration, no salvation, no heaven. You reject Adam, no heaven. You have to reject heaven. And there's no hope. How so? Because again, verse 12 to 19, 21, a comparison is made between Adam and literal sin and death and condemnation he brought into the world, and then it's compared to Jesus in a literal forgiveness and justification to be declared righteous though we were formerly guilty by imputation and by participation. And redemption and eternal life. There's there's a comparison brought. The one through Adam, that's real. No one denies that. Sin, death. And so you you want a real salvation, a real heaven. You need, by way of the comparison, a real Adam and fall. So no literal Adam, no literal Christ, no literal forgiveness, no literal justification, eternity, no hope. Thanks be to God, though there was a literal Adam.
more importantly, and a literal second Adam. Related, this passage reminds us that God's biggest concern isn't our nationality our, or our ethnicity, but his biggest concern has to do with spirituality, even though he made all of those things. Recently, my sister and I bought my mom one of those DNA things, and she found out she's mo- more Southeast Asian than anything. My mom, she's, she's more Vietnamese than anything else. And I thought, that explains why I only like Asian food. <laughs> but, you know, we can get excited about those things and, and, and talk about them, and then there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But no one can do anything about their ethnicity. But God says, in effect, more than thinking about this or that nationality, every single one of us has one ancestry in, co- in common in Adam. In Adam. One human race, and therefore, therefore, in sin, in death, in condemnation. And so that's a problem that we need, to, we need to unite on so that we can unite on the solution as well, right? Our ancestry ultimately is fallen. And even after he sinned and started to die, I promise you that Adam didn't want to be in Adam. Adam didn't want to be in his own line. So more than anything else, the solution is to get into Christ and to get that. And if you have that identity by faith alone and Christ alone, that should be the most exciting thing to us, beloved. Second, so what? Trust in Christ and abandon salvation by works. Trust in Jesus and abandon any delusion of salvation by works. Understanding Romans 5, 12 to 14, I mean, it highlights, doesn't it, beloved, emphatically, how salvation could never be by works. Think about it. Our big issue, our biggest issue isn't that we make some mistakes now and then, though that is, but that we're in this fallen ancestral line. So you tell me how by works can we un-DNA ourselves and un-ancestry ourselves out of Adam's line? You know, people disown their family and get a new, make a new last name for themselves sometimes, but they, they do that, but that doesn't change the line that you're in. This is why Christ came to save. We can't work our way out of our corrupt line. And therefore, nature, line, therefore, nature, and therefore, doing. And that order is essential to understand. Our first representative, Adam, brought in the burden of death and sin and corruption. No one can argue that, but our second representative, he brings up and lifts the burden off of us. Presently, now, through forgiveness and justification, and I'm adopted into God's family, and then putting to death the power of sin in us that came through the corruption of Adam's line and eventually raising those in Christ from the dead, defeating that great enemy that came in through sin that can only be defeated if you get out of Adam's line. You're not going to do it another way. Well, cryogenics one day, it's not happening, sorry. It's not happening. Christ lifts it all. He carried the burden. He, He undid it his sinless life, his death to pay for our sin, and his resurrection. Trust in him. Third, praise God. Number three, this is the last word. I know you were wondering about it. Where's that third word, regeneration? We haven't talked about it. Praise God for regeneration, a.k.a. the miracle of the new birth. You can see from Romans 5, 12 to 14, why this, why regeneration is such a big praise and a big deal. Again, in the line of Adam, he's our ancestor. So our greatest need is to be removed from our ancestral line. To be brought into a different heritage. How do you do that? How do you do that? This is the burden of the human race and the problem of the world. Our greatest need is not first to stop doing some mistakes and slip-ups now and then, but that is a need. 
Our greatest need is to get out of that heritage and into a new one. How do we do that? We cannot. We cannot do that. Romans 5, 12 to 14 is, highlights one of the most important things to understand in salvation, beloved. The need for regeneration. You don't have to turn there, but in John 3, 3 to 5 and following, 3 to 8, really, Jesus says this phrase, you, you've heard of it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't go to heaven. And Nicodemus, who was a, a Pharisee, says, what are you talking about? How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus says in verse 5, in effect, no, I'm not talking about physical birth, but spiritual birth. That comes by the Holy Spirit. Heaven's power. And that, that phrase in John 3, born again, in the Greek it actually says born from above. Born from above, born from heaven. Not here on earth, stuff, spiritual. You see how Romans 5.12 and that connect, don't you? This idea of the new birth, it's also mentioned in John 1.12, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, and in Titus 3.3-5. In Titus 3.5, it says, in fact, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit has brought regeneration into the life of a Christian, where that Greek word, regeneration, it's a compound word, that it literally means an again birth or an again generation. Hence the theological term regeneration. Regeneration is what happens to every single person the instant they become a Christian without exception. Regenerate, becoming a Christian isn't reciting a prayer. It's a new birth from on high, beloved, by the grace of God. It's the miracle, it's the greatest miracle that happens on earth, by the way, where the Holy Spirit of God, the supernatural act of God's sovereign grace, where he grants spiritual life to the previously dead sinner, thereby yanking you out of Adam's ancestral cursed line and putting you in the line of Christ and making you alive. So you see, how do I get unborn out of my Adamic line and into the line of Christ? The new birth. It's Jesus, the, the Spirit of God does it and puts you in the line of Christ. Without that, you cannot be saved. You cannot be forgiven. You cannot go to heaven. You cannot know God or please him. It's through this regeneration, this again birth. That's how being Otherwise, irreparably and hopelessly in the line of Adam, that's how God solves it in an act of his great love and sovereign grace. This is why salvation, the, the, this, that term sovereign grace, is the term to describe what happens. God sovereignly does it. Praise God for regeneration. Oh, it's the greatest miracle in the world. The greatest miracle. Regeneration pulls us out of that line so that I have a new heritage now. I'm in Christ. That phrase you see so many times in the New Testament. That, that doesn't mean I, I prayed a prayer and threw a pine cone and walked forward at some unfortunate quote-unquote revival where my emotions were manipulated. No. Becoming a Christian is where the Holy Spirit from on high comes with power, great power. And this is the explanation behind, why do I have these new desires to honor and please and love God, notwithstanding I still fail? Why do I have new desires to read this love letter from God? And it makes sense all of a sudden. Why do I have this new hope when things are just crummy a lot? Why do I have a desire for other people to know this blessed Savior, a Savior of grace? Because I've, I've had this, the greatest miracle in the universe, chucked on me from heaven. Regeneration. And again, birth. And this is the power of the love of God. What's the song? Born to give them second birth. 
the joy to the world. Hark the herald angels sing. Thank you, Neil. Good thing we have Neil here. I love that line, born to give them second birth. And again birth. So, verse 12 and following, and to 14 then, beloved. Verse 12 to 14 and following. These are like adoption papers from God. To declare the certainty of his love and salvation. That he says, though this was your previous line, and Adam were all die. And sin and have no hope, other words. These are like your adoption papers. That you fall down and just fall on the nail-pierced hands of Jesus Christ. You're, you're in a new line. Merry Christmas. Praise God. Hallelujah. And if you don't know him today, the Bible says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. By grace we're saved through faith. And this, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. All the destruction, pride, hate, violence, stuff in the world that just is a burden to us, it's because we're born in Adam. And it remains because either you've been unborn out of that and we're being worked on through sanctification or because many, many in the human race are still in that cursed line that I promise Sometimes people pretend like they're happy. It's a burden to be in that Adamic line. Burden. And by God's grace, we can get out of it. I have faith in him. And so number four, so what? Number four, so what? This Christmas season, let's tell someone about the second Adam. Let's tell somebody about the greater Adam who carried our burden of our original corrupted ancestral line. And through faith in him alone brings a new birth. Father in heaven, thank you for your great love. Just the, the power of God, your power, the power of the Holy Spirit. As we, as we look at this passage, Father, we, we, we just span the spectrum of both sorrow and realizing hopelessness that we could never get out of our original corruption and that heritage. But we also rejoice and just rest in thankfulness that through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the foreordination, love, compassion, grace of the Father, we're pulled out. And may many people be pulled out of that line this Christmas season. If any of us here this morning haven't, put faith in Christ, I pray we all would and go forward in thankfulness and gratitude this Christmas season. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.